so, Lord God, take uh, our lives and let them be ever only all for thee. I pray that you, uh, Lord God, through the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that you would uh, speak, that you would speak through us to us. And in Jesus' name, amen. This week's sermon is really a continuation of last week's uh, sermon, Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And last week we preached that his yoke must be his cross. And so you remember, I came in wearing this cross, and then we asked this question how could a cross be an easy yoke? or a light burden. We notice that love makes yokes easy and burdens light, but you can't love and you can't be animated by love if you're so stuck on yourself. And then we notice that crosses are designed to kill selves. We pondered what it would mean to pick up a cross in Jesus' day and realized that a man who had picked up a cross would know that he had already been judged. And so there would be no point in trying to judge himself or trying to justify himself. He would know that he had been judged and that that very day he would die on a tree. Well, we preach that when Jesus says, take up a cross daily, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, it's like he's offering to help us die. Or maybe realize that we're already dead. At the benediction, I read 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us. It controls us like music controls dancers in a dance, as if the uh, piper pipes, as if Jesus pipes, and we, like little children, all begin to dance. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then I shared about a vision that a friend had during a worship service in, in which uh, people that received God's word in the sanctuary were like immediately crucified on these crosses. And then Jesus danced through the sanctuary, taking people down off their crosses. But some people would not let him. Well, if a person refuses to come down from a cross, wouldn't it mean that they're not quite dead because they're fighting him. Or at least they refuse to admit that they're dead. In other words, they're still trying to save themselves and won't lose themselves. They're, they're still trying to judge themselves, sanctify themselves, save themselves, create themselves. They're still trying to justify themselves themselves. Therefore, they cannot lose themselves and then find themselves dancing with Jesus. Well, people like that, people like that remind me of myself and remind me of this guy. I wish I could introduce myself, but I don't remember my name anymore. I mean, I think it started with an R, but that's all I have left. I can't remember my name, or my parents, or my job, although my hoodie would suggest I was unemployed. 
This is a typical day for me. I shuffle around, occasionally bumping into people, unable to apologize or say much of anything. I don't want to be this way. I'm lonely. I'm lost. I mean, I'm literally lost. I've never been in this part of the airport before. I wonder if these guys are lost too. Wandering around but never getting anywhere. Do they feel trapped? Do they want more than this? This is my best friend. By best friend, I mean we occasionally grunt and stare awkwardly at each other. We even have almost conversations sometimes. Days pass this way. What am I doing with my life? I'm so pale. I should get out more. I should eat better. My posture is terrible. I should stand up straighter. People would respect me more if I stood up straighter. What's wrong with me? I just want to connect. Why can't I connect with people? Oh, right. It's because I'm dead. I shouldn't be so hard on myself. I mean, we're all dead. This girl's dead. That guy's dead. That guy in the corner is definitely dead. Jesus, these guys look awful. I mean, maybe that's our problem right there, that, that we're dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh, this dead flesh. That's the way Paul would put it. That clip, you know, is from the movie Warm Bodies. Have anybody seen that movie, Warm Bodies? That's good, because then you have a deeper spiritual understanding of this sermon this morning. R is one of the walking dead. He's a zombie. And there's one other problem with zombies other than, than what was just mentioned there at the start, and that is that they can't dream. And they can't dream because they can't sleep. They are restless. That's why they try to feed on the living. They're restless, desperately looking for rest. Heavy laden with their own dead flesh, desperately looking for rest. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for your psyches. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, look at that. Your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Sabbath uh, comes from the Hebrew noun Shabbat, from the Hebrew verb, verb uh, Shabbat, or something like that. Alice, Allison, I saw Allison here, she, she knows, right? But anyway, it basically means stop. Exodus 31, 13, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. Above all, you shall stop. It's really kind of a weird commandment if you stop and think about it. Above all, my people are to be very diligent about doing nothing. It's the fourth commandment of the Big Ten. Exodus 28 uh, through 11. Every Sabbath, every seventh day, Sabbath, um, Sabbath, stop, because in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Shabbat, the Sabbath day, and made it holy. So remember the Sabbath because I, not you, 
create you. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15, God gives a different reason for the Sabbath. He says, observe the Sabbath to keep it holy, keep it different. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So remember the Sabbath because I, not you, delivered you, saved you. Exodus 31, 12 through 17, the Lord says to Moses, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Keep the Sabbath as a covenant forever, like, like an eternal covenant. So, so remember the Sabbath because I, not you, sanctify you. I justify you. That means I make you Righteous. So observing the Sabbath is about remembering that God has created you, delivered you, and sanctifies you. He rests because he has given you rest. So if you believe that, you'll rest. Rest or die. That's the commandment. He rests, and so you must rest or die. Exodus 31, 12, listen to this. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. The, the day of atonement was the ultimate Sabbath, the Sabbath of the Sabbath. You shall keep my Sabbath, and then keep the Sabbath, for everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall you work, uh, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of Sabbathing, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the seventh day shall be put to death. Any work and you die. And so that naturally raises a question, doesn't it? Okay, um, so like, what constitutes work? Pumping blood from your heart to your body, is, is that work? I mean, isn't life work? Scripture goes on to define work in just three places. Exodus 16, gathering manna constitutes work, so that's, that's easy. Um, Exodus 35, kindling fire constitutes work. And Jeremiah 17, carrying a burden outside the home is work. So we want to know well, what constitutes a home and what is light enough so that it qualifies as not being a, a burden. Pastor, could you get a little more specific, a little more practical, a little more clear? Could you make it clear? How much exactly should I give? How long do I have to pray? Give me more knowledge of the good so that I can be good. That's what we want, right? Ironically, that's exactly what the Pharisees gave. The Pharisees did exactly what we all want done. They clarified the law so people could obey, obey the law so that they could rest as, as God rested. The Mishnah was their law about the law. It set forward 39 tasks that were forbidden on the Sabbath. For instance, you could write one letter on the Sabbath, but not two, because the Mishnah specified that ink enough for two letters was considered to be a burden. A journey was defined as a certain distance from home, and a home defined as the place that you ate. So in Jesus' day, if you needed to take a trip on the Sabbath, what you would do is the day before, uh, you would go out along the trip and you would place food at intervals equaling a Sabbath day's journey. And then on the Sabbath, you would travel the Sabbath day's journey to the first stash of food, eat the food, and declare, this is my home. And then you would travel to the next stash of food, eat the food, and declare, this is my home. And then 
travel to the And in that way, you could go on your way. You see, they worked extremely hard. They worked extremely hard at not working. Let's talk a little bit about keeping the Sabbath holy. I've always wondered if it came about because God rested on the, on the Sabbath, and that's why man has to. That's right, and that was the creation of the seventh day, that there should be rest. There are 39 types of specific actions that cannot be done on the Sabbath. Mm. One of them is lighting a fire, planting, another one is plowing, another one is tying a knot, untying a knot, one is building, and one is destroying so as to build. So much more kosher is to develop these gadgets that figure out a way around it. That's right. Okay, um, that would be fascinating. Yeah. An elevator. Oh, it's a Shabbat elevator. Let me guess. You can't push a button. Correct. On the Sabbath. But how do you get someone to put this in their building if they're not completely nuts? <laughs> well, actually, that really doesn't make a difference. Hmm. <laughs> it's easy to laugh, but understand that Bill Maher is laughing at you, too. The Pharisees worked extremely hard at not working, naturally, because God says rest or die. And Christians work extremely hard at grace, for God says faith in grace or die. And so we come up with all sorts of rules to make that practically applicable so that we can rest. You have faith in grace if you give 10% to the church, pray uh, long enough, share your faith on the bus. So you, you have faith in grace if you adequately understand faith by grace. In other words, you trust grace if you, well, don't actually trust grace, but trust your knowledge of grace. If you trust yourself and kind of like call it grace. In other words, you rest if you work really, really, really hard. Resting. You know, I think I'm awfully a lot like those Pharisees. And I'm not lying now. I was so stressed about preaching on rest that I just, I couldn't sleep last <laughs> Thursday night. That's me. Rest or die, that's the law. And Jesus said, think not that I have come to abolish the law. Think not that I've come to abolish the Rest or die. So right now on this Sabbath, Christians celebrate the Sabbath now on the first day of the week rather than the last day. On this Sabbath, I command you to rest. And so let's do that. Let's see who can rest the best right now. Okay, we'll have a competition to see who can rest best. Maybe who can fall asleep first. Okay, ready? Go. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God, says the Lord. Psalm 127, the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. Did you get that? Gives to his beloved sleep. Matthew 8, Jesus fell asleep on the boat in the storm. Exodus 31, rest or die, rest or die, rest or, rest, rest or die. No one. Why? Well, because that's kind of unrestful, isn't it? What a weird commandment. The harder you try to obey, the more you disobey. The harder you work at not working, the more you work. The harder you try to rest, the less you do. You can't stop you with you. Shabbat. And yet Shabbat is what we all want, right? We all want rest. 
What does every sinner want? Rest. The booze will give me rest. The prostitute will give me rest. Something needs to give me rest. We all want to be rested. We all want to be finished. We all want to be satisfied. We all want to be created, delivered, and sanctified. We all want to be justified. We all want to live in that seventh day of creation where everything is good and everyone is at rest and we are in the image of God and in communion with each other in perfect shalom. It is exactly what every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve most desperately desires, but the moment you turn it into a law that we must fulfill to justify ourselves, we die. Or maybe we begin to realize that we're already dead. The law is an impossible yoke and an unbearable burden. Matthew eleven thirty. My yoke is easy, says Jesus, and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went to the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees, that means the separate, saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How we entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profaned the Sabbath, because they had to sacrifice a lamb on the Sabbath, and bread, how they profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, you know, these, these verses, that what I just read, they're very frustrating verses for a guy like me to read because I want to know what is good and what is evil so I can apply the word to myself and justify myself. And I'm still not sure if Jesus is saying disciples picking on grain on the Sabbath and priests sacrificing lambs, and I'm still not sure whether he's saying that's good or evil. It's almost like Jesus is saying, because I'm here, it's good. It's Sabbath. Something greater than the temple is here, is present. You know, Jesus said he is a temple. He's our temple, he's, he's our home. He's the lamb that is sacrificed, even the priest that does the sacrificing. He's the son of David and the root of David. He's even the bread of the presence, the, the presence. In Leviticus, the priests were commanded to put 12 loaves of bread on a table in the temple to re be replaced every Sabbath. They were to be two piles of six. Now, you know, six is uh, the sixth day of, it symbolizes, I think, man, the day on which man was created. Two piles, like a man torn in two. It was to be a covenant uh, forever. Now, nobody understood that at the time. Why would you put these two piles, this two things on a table in, in the, the, the temple, but, but it was called the bread of the presence, literally the bread of the face, like if you've seen this, you've seen God, and you know God. You remember Jesus took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, this is my blood, this is the covenant, the eternal covenant. Well, verse six. Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
See what I mean? He's like walking, talking Sabbath. Verse seven, Jesus quotes Hosea the prophet, I desire mercy, chesed in Hebrew. It means covenant love. It, it means grace. I desire love. And, and you know, the law describes love, but Jesus is the very presence of love and the sacrifice of love. God is love and Jesus is God in flesh, body broken, blood shed. Verse eight, the son of man is Lord of the Shabbat. It's finished. He went on from there and entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? You see, if the man loves the sheep, it doesn't matter how much the sheep weighs, it is not a heavy burden. Love makes yokes easy and burdens light. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Pharisees seemed to know about the good, but were incapable of doing good. We seem to have the knowledge of good, but can't actually do the good. In fact, we're kind of like offended by the good. In fact, we'd like to kind of take the good and hang them on our tree of knowledge of, of the good. Verse 13, he said to them, stretch out your hand, or he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath and doesn't consider it or him to be a burden. It's like he creates him, delivers him, sanctifies him, the man is finished, and so he can rest. Jesus is, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath, as if all he rules and all he does is Sabbath, as if his work is rest. His work is rest. And our work is not rest. His work is rest and our rest is work, work, work. Romans 14, verse five, Rabbi Paul writes this, one person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Just live to the Lord. Galatians 4, nine, now that you have come to know God or be known by God, how can you now turn back to the weak and elementary spirits of this world whose slave you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and I'm afraid that I have labored with you in vain. Colossians 2, verse 16, he writes, let no one pass judgment on you concerning food or drink or a Sabbath. They are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to to Christ. Paul writes, the substance of the Sabbath belongs to Christ. So when Christ came, the Sabbath came. See, it's like wherever Christ is, the Sabbath is. 
So Sabbath isn't simply a day of the week. I think it is that, but it's not simply a day of the week. It's like a mode of existence, like living in rest or moving out of rest, like dancing a dance in which obedience is freedom and labor is rest. Hebrews 4, we read, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from all his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive, what a wild phrase, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So what is that rest? Where is that rest? And when is that rest? Because if God has no rest, how could we ever enter his rest? Soren Kierkegaard wrote, the greatest danger for a child is not that his teacher be an unbeliever, but that his teacher be pious and God-fearing and that the child seeing this would nevertheless notice that deep within there be a terrible unrest. The danger is that the child would draw the conclusion that God is not infinite love. I think that there is a terrible rest, a terrible unrest, I'm sorry. I think there's a terrible unrest deep within the heart of modern evangelical Christianity. And that is the belief that God has no rest. That is, that eternally and forever without end, God is relentlessly angry with some of the children that he has made, for he tortures them endlessly in a place we call hell. Even more, we are responsible for that anger and therefore responsible for God's rest. So it's our job to give our creator rest, and that's pretty dang unrestful. So what is God's rest? For if God is not rest and God cannot rest, we cannot enter his rest. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, everything was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The sixth day was finished. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. There can be no torture chamber on the seventh day. Why? Because everything is good. And all his work is finished. It is finished. The seventh day, a holy day, a different kind of day. Now Hebrews just told us that his work was finished from the foundation of the world, which means day seven happened like on day one or before day one. 
So you see, day seven is not like the other days. Unlike the other days of creation in Genesis, the seventh day has no evening and morning, like no beginning and end. Zechariah 14, seven, it's a unique day that has no day and no night. In the Revelation, at the seventh seal, seventh thunder, seventh trumpet, which includes the seventh bowl, the angel that looks just like Jesus, he swears out loud that time, chronological time, chronos, shall be no more, for the mystery of God is fulfilled. And Paul makes it clear that we have come to the end of the ages in Christ. Christ, who was crucified at the sixth hour on the sixth day of the week, the sixth day of creation, as he cried out, it is finished, and made atonement, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. I'm trying to say that the seventh day is eternal. That the seventh day is the kingdom of heaven. And that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we get to the seventh day through Jesus who is the way, the door, the word of our creator who creates us, delivers us, and sanctifies us by grace through faith. Jesus is the substance of the Sabbath in our sixth day world. Now, I've shown you this diagram numerous times. I don't think it describes a week long ago. And I don't think Genesis chapter one describes a week long ago. Genesis chapter one is a description of all time, a description of the days of time. Physicists now argue that if uh, the universe is 15 billion years old, if it is 15 billion years old from the standpoint of our planet, it would be about six days old from the standpoint of creation or the Big Bang. And it doesn't matter whether you buy this physics of special relativity or, or not because the Bible has said it all along. Humanity, Adam, is created in the sixth day and Adam is still being created. How do I know that? Because I'm still being created, you're still being created, and we are Adam, we are mankind. The word means mankind. However, Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. Do you get that? Firstborn of all creation. So the firstborn of all creation happened at noon on a, on a Friday. The firstborn from the dead, the ultimate Adam, perfect image of the invisible God. So no one was finished until Jesus cried out, it is finished, as he hung on that tree where we are saved and sanctified and created, finished in him. So if you've been around a while, you've also seen this slide a lot. I'm saying that Jesus is the presence of the seventh day in our sixth day world. Jesus came to give us eternal life. A seventh day heart in a sixth-day body. Jesus came to fulfill the law in us. Jesus is the love of God in us, eternal life in us. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. So in Matthew 12, verse 13, he heals the crippled man on the Sabbath. Verse 14, the Pharisees conspire against him how to destroy him. They want to be right, but they can't make themselves right and they're jealous of the one who is right. They want love and so they try to take love. They want to rest and can't find rest, so in the name of rest, they crucify the Lord of rest. 
They crucify the Lord of the Sabbath. They crucify the good on their knowledge of the good, trying to justify themselves. They crucify the one who justifies us all, trying to rest. They crucify rest on the tree. We all took his life on the tree. And yet he gave his life on the tree. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so he transformed the tree of knowledge into the tree of life. And you understand love is, is not a thing then. Love is not a thing like a list or a set of laws that you can take and simply apply to your life. Love, real love, is God. And God applies you to his life by giving you his own life as a seed and then justifying you with himself. In that movie, uh, Warm Bodies, R wanders around all day, judging himself, trying to justify himself. What am I doing with my life? I'm so pale, I should, get, I should eat better, I should, get, I should stand, my posture is terrible, I should stand up straighter. People would respect me more if I just stood up straighter. What's wrong with me? I just want to connect. Why can't I connect with people? Oh yeah, I'm dead. God said to the Adam, the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. So when Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he immediately began to judge himself, trying to justify himself. <laughs> What's wrong with me? I should love, but I don't love. I think maybe I just crucified love. I want to connect. Why can't I connect? Oh, oh yeah, we're dead. Our souls are dead. Our psyches are dead. See, maybe we can't rest on the seventh day until we admit that we're dead on the sixth day. In other words, I can't find myself until I lose myself. But how could I lose myself with myself? R can't lose himself. He can't stop thinking about himself. He can't rest. He can't dream. He can't make himself right or tr stop trying to make himself right until someone else makes him right. What am I doing with my life? I just want to connect. Why can't I connect with people? All right, it's because I'm dead. Nice watch.
started something here. Whatever it is that you two have, it's infecting the others. Dad, they're somehow curing themselves. They are not curing themselves. Come with me. Love makes us human. I think that's Genesis chapter one. And that's actually pretty good theology. It means we can't make ourselves love. But love can make us ourselves. Actually, when the zombies begin to love, they begin to sleep and they begin to dream. But not really about the future, they begin uh, to dream of what life really is and who they truly are. Maybe whenever you love, you're dreaming of who you truly are. You're dreaming of your home in the seventh day. But you see, we don't create rest. Rest creates us. We don't create love. Love creates us. God is love and Jesus is the substance of the Sabbath. Your rest is in Him or Him in you. Actually, love invades the zombies in the movie when R kills Julie's boyfriend, Perry, eats his body broken and blood shed, which should sound kind of familiar. Actually, he eats his brains. <laughs> so R has the mind of Perry. Kind of like you have the mind of Christ. Okay, think about that a bit. Well, R begins to love as Perry had loved, which means he begins to see that he was dead. Which means he begins to feel remorse. Which means he confesses and Julie forgives. He, he took love like fruit from a tree. He took love and that sin. But love forgave love uh, like seed planted in a soil. Love forgave love and that's grace. Grace is life. Well, in the presence of love, R begins to learn to love. He lives. And the other zombies begin to learn to love in the presence of his love. The zombies love and become who they truly are human in the image of God. And now listen to our text. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Maybe if you don't come, you aren't heavy laden enough. And God will make you heavy laden. The law came in to increase the trespass. It's an interesting verse. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can't earn rest, achieve rest, or make rest. Someone has to give you rest. You can't make yourself right. Someone else has to make you right. You can't justify yourself. You must be justified. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is a cross. And he said, take it up daily. So what the heck does that mean? So what we talked about last week is what I've been asking myself for quite some time because I labor and I often feel very heavy laden and I need rest for my soul, my psyche. I have this job, you know. I'm a pastor. 
That means that people expect me to have the knowledge of good and evil. People expect me to know what's right and to do what's right. They expect me to be righteous, and I expect me to be righteous. And so I spend a lot of time judging myself, which means I spend a lot of time trying to justify myself, which means trying to make myself right so that I can rest, but I can't rest. I spend all this time wandering around, stumbling around, bumping into people, shooting on myself. I should get out more. I should eat better. I should have called. I shouldn't have called. I should have. No, I should have called. I should have. I should have been more blunt. No, I should have been more solid. I should work more. No, I should work less. I should do this. I should do. I should do that, but I should. I should work I can't stop I can't connect what's wrong with me well if I took up a cross the way a person took up a cross in Jesus day I would know that I had been judged so there would be no point in justifying myself or even judging myself Remember what St. Paul wrote? With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by any of you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. You know, whenever we judge ourselves, aren't we judging love in ourselves? As if love were a thing that we had created and we could therefore judge but we can't judge love or create love. Love creates us and judges us. In fact, maybe that me that judges me is so stuck on me, it's that me is the very thing that needs to be judged and condemned. That me that judges love and so won't surrender to love because the Lord is love. Well, if I picked up a cross, I would be surrendering my judgment to God's judgment, the judgment of love. I would give up on justifying myself in the past and surrender my hope of ever justifying myself in the future. I would stop worrying about what I had done, what I had said, and whether I was right or wrong. I would stop worrying about what I will do and what I will say and whether I will be right or wrong. I'd stop worrying uh, about whether or not I had loved or would loved as if I were the judge of love. I'd surrender my past and my future and carry only an infinitely small burden called now. Yet now is the only place I can know love. Now is the only place I can know a person. Love is a person that's with me now. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Peter. God is love, and, and love justifies me now. Love makes me right, right now. So when you are laboring, when you labor and are heavy laden and you can't find rest for your psyche, your soul, maybe try this, picture yourself crucified with Christ and let that self that cannot rest die. You can't justify that self. But love will justify you now. Love creates you, saves you, sanctifies you now, presently, in the present, with his presence. So pick up a cross, watch yourself die, then listen to love. He is a presence with you now. Say, love, 
What do we want to do? And do that. Look around at the people next to you, your neighbors. Maybe look in the mirror, because maybe you are the last and the least of these that must be loved. Look around and say, love, what do we want to do? And do that. And that will be right. That will be the revelation of the right. That will be the revelation of you, the eternal you. That will be the revelation of the new creation. And God wants to show you all of it. That. And by the way, that's how children enter the kingdom of God, ahead of Pharisees and pastors and professors. They lose themselves in love. Like they lose themselves in a dance. It's like the piper pipes and they just start dancing. They don't try to love to make themselves right. They are right because love has made them dance. <laughs> the dance is right. The dance is rest. It's the new creation. I think that's where we get the word recreation. Re-creation. It's work that's done from rest. Maybe all of Jesus' work was done from rest, healing lame men, blessing little children, e even carrying his cross. He seems to have considered an easy yoke and a light burden for the love of you. And he didn't do any of it to make himself righteous. He did all of it because he is righteous. And when he makes us righteous, all our work becomes recreation. I think that's recreation. Maybe there is no righteousness but recreational, recreational righteousness. That is, you do right not to make yourself righteous. You do right because you are righteous. In the words of St. Paul, you do good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Step by step, that you should walk in them. I read about a university professor who was invited to speak at this military base. Upon arrival at the airport, he met Ralph. Ralph was sent from the base in order to pick up the professor, help him carry his luggage. As they walked down the concourse, Ralph, he, he kept disappearing. Once to help this older woman whose luggage had fallen apart, he helped her with that. Once to pick up these two little children who wanted to see Santa Claus. Once to help a person find their way that was lost. And each time he would come back with this, with this big smile on his face. Where did you learn to do that? The professor asked. Do what, said Ralph. Where did you learn to live like that? Oh, 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 Ralph said, I guess during the war. And then he told the professor about his tour of duty in Vietnam. His job was to clear uh, minefields of landmines. He watched as uh, one friend after another would blow up in front of his face. I learned to live between steps, he said. I never knew whether the next one would be my last, so I learned to get everything I could out of the moment between when I picked up my foot and when I put it down again. Every step I took was a whole new world like a whole new creation. And I guess I've just been that way ever since. Seems to me that Ralph 
picked up his cross, died to himself, lived in the now, and there met love. And love made him righteous. So let's do that. On the night love was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take, eat. And in the same manner, after supper, having given thanks, he said, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. Eat and drink. See, I think, I think, this is the bread of the presence. He's present. And he wants you to be present. So let's talk to him. Would you pray with me? Now I'll say something and you just say something like this in your heart, okay? Um, maybe you could say something like this. I surrender myself to your judgment. I surrender myself to your judgment and I want you to be my judgment. I want you to be my love. Now live in this place. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The dark cup is wine, the light cup is juice. They are both the love of God and the will of God. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, let's worship. And so he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, take up your cross and follow me daily. And now if you're thinking to yourself, okay, um, but what happens if like, okay, he's like the new life. What if I crucify him? What if I crucify the, the good him? What if I pick up my cross and, and uh, the man of love gets crucified? Well, do you understand? Love can't die. <laughs> so what happens at the cross? We are saved, Scripture says, in the circumcision of Christ. <laughs> That's a wild picture. But our old dead flesh is cut away. And what remains? The power of an indestructible life. That's what Hebrews calls it. Um, the Lord of love. The new you. The very body of Christ. And so may you, may you live free. May you live constantly sacrificing that old self and living in the now with Jesus who is your new self. May you live free in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.